Hello there. Welcome to Intersect, where church meets culture. I'm Josh Desch, lead pastor at Northeast Presbyterian Church, joined as always by Betsy. Hello, everybody. And we are back for the second part of our interview with Dr. Dan Doriani. In this part of the interview, we get into the specifics of the four Gospels and how we can learn to love and appreciate each one of them. So enjoy the rest of this interview. Well, so switching gears a little bit um, more, we were kind of curious. Now, obviously, with this next question, you could answer each part of it with a book. So we're asking for briefly. And, and he's, he's written books <laughs> right. on, on Matthew. But we we're could not, consult your books on this. No. Um, but um, just thinking through the, the you know, peculiarities of every gospel or the, the things that make them unique, what does each gospel contribute to our picture of Jesus? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. So Matthew presents Jesus as the teacher. There's more teaching in Matthew than any other gospel. Mm -hmm. And the church has long recognized that in a variety of ways. It's also a gospel that initially addresses Jewish audiences, but it's to say it's the gospel for the Jews is really not correct because there's a lot of criticism of Jewish unbelief. Yep. It's really for, for Jews who believe and want to share their faith with the world. Mm. So it's an, it's an evangelistic gospel, and it's great for insiders to take what they have. And, you know, that's how Matthew ends, make disciples of the nations, which means the Gentiles. So it's for Jewish folk who are not insular but love Jesus and want to pass it on to the world, and then by implication it would speak to people in the church who might view themselves as insiders or be insiders and urge them to make sure they're sharing with others. Mark is associated with a lion because Jesus is in a narrative that's very fast-moving. It's the least amount of teaching in, uh, among the four Gospels, and it rushes toward the cross, and in, in the narration, the disciples are radically unfaithful, you know, they abandon him, they don't understand him. That's in all four Gospels, but it's accentuated in Mark. And so we have Jesus as the one who faces death and the evil one and and the suffering on the cross alone. And so he's the conqueror, the hero. And it's written with uh, maybe Roman audiences' mind or certain, the way things are described is in a way that would make most sense to someone of, of Roman background. And so that's a gospel that shows us, you might say, a little bit of how, how to contextualize. Luke is the gospel for everyone. It's written in Greek. It's for anybody in the Greek culture. Uh, there's, at times, alternation between Jesus healing a Jew and a Gentile, between healing a man and a woman. He heals the rich and the poor, the slave and the free. And, and so we... we it seems that parables are the same way. You might have a woman in one and a man in the next and then a woman and a man. And so we have a lot of apparent effort, shall we say, to make it clear that Jesus is for everyone. And a lot of the parables in Luke, which are different from those, largely different from the ones in Matthew and Mark, are not parables of the king about uh, the reign of God, but they're parables about uh, what it means to be a disciple. Mm -hmm. And and the people in this parables are often sort of every man or every woman type person. And John is, uh, I, I compared John to that kind of children's program that has all sorts of winks and nods 
to the, the parents and is constantly entertaining them with <laughs> allusions to high literature. Oh, that's funny. And, <laughs> because, you know, you can read John as a very, very simple book, but it has hints and allusions and references to the Old Testament all the time. And it also has sort of a dual linguistic framework. It has the smallest vocabulary of the four Gospels, and yet it uses the vocabulary in highly varied ways and, and seems to be borrowing language from the culture that people, you know, Greek people would would, um, what it says, would, would say, oh, he's alluding to the Stoics. Oh, he's alluding to Plato. Oh, he's tapping into this aspect of our cultural narrative. Uh, but if you don't know it, you don't lose anything. It's, you know, like kids watching a show that alludes to who knows what, hmm. crime and punishment, hmm. you know, hmm. Dostoevsky's novels. The kids don't mind, and the, adult, and the adults are delighted. Right. It's like a good Pixar movie or a good Disney movie, right? I mean, there's, there's, it's hitting on both levels. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a quick run through the four Gospels. Very, very quick. Dan, that, that's, that's very helpful. Um, I would be curious, you know, I've always viewed you as really an expert in Matthew. It seems like you've done a lot of work in Matthew, you've written commentaries on Matthew. Tell us a little bit about how God drew you to this particular gospel, and what have you learned through a lifetime of studying Matthew? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. So many, Josh, so many things that happen in our lives are almost accidents. Yeah, so uh, you know, at least to our eyes, they're accidents. So, so when I was a brand new, uh, when I was a brand new college prof, I had a class that I had to teach or had the privilege of teaching called the teachings of Jesus. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do for the teachings of Jesus? And I thought, well, you know, Matthew's the gospel with the most teaching. So I'll teach that course. And honestly, it just built from there. Mm-hmm. I, once I started, I kept going. Of course, I've studied. Uh, I studied Luke a lot as well, and you know, substantially Matthew and Luke more than the others. But I've certainly spent lots of time in in Mark and John. But it really came down to just being told by my department chairman, "You're going to do this course." And I thought, <laughs> wow. Matthew's the book, yeah. and I, you know, I fell in love with it, and. Um, there's just so much that's interesting. I do have an ethical bent. I do teach ethics at the seminary, biblical ethics at the seminary. And Matthew probably is the most ethical book of the four in the sense of having sustained narratives or descript, not narratives, but accounts of what the life of a disciple is like. For example, the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew and not in Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So our... Um Taking that a little farther, are there two or three stories, or as we say in the South, a couple three, couple three stories um, from from Matthew or really any of the Gospels that have especially spoken to your heart? Would you share, um, you know, what what God has taught you through yeah. a little snapshot? Um, you know, this is this is almost borderline crazy, but <laughs> is, I like Matthew as a whole more. I suppose, mm. but, I, but I actually like the stories, the individual stories I always like more in Mark, Luke, and John, because mm. in order to have all this teaching material, which I find delightful, yep. uh, the narratives are always the shortest, always, yep. almost always they're the shortest. If you have an account of a, of a miracle, the account in Matthew is probably going to be the shortest one. So 
uh, you've you've put a conundrum on me, Betsy. Believe mm, it or not. Well, it and, doesn't have to be from Matthew. It can really be anything. Okay, good, good. <laughs> well, I was just saying, if you make me go with Matthew, I, I like in terms of story. I like Matthew eight because, as a whole, because Jesus heals such surprising people. You know, a leper mm. and a centurion's beloved servant, and then and then on from there, and and he and he heals sometimes with a touch and sometimes with a command. Mm-hmm. And it shows that he condescends to touch people, but he also can heal as he wills just by his word, his word of power, his authoritative word, which allows him to teach authoritatively in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, and then to speak authoritatively, the word and the word go together when he heals by a mere word. But I don't know, I love the story of the... Um, of the boy who whose father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Yep, I've just yep. shared that with so many non-believers. Mm-hmm. It's told in so much beautiful detail in Mark 9. Certainly, I love the parables of Luke. And, and you know, any number of, of stories, like the story of Jesus healing the, nine, the ten lepers, and nine disappear, and one comes back, and he's worshiping, he's praising God at Jesus' feet. And Jesus goes, so where are the other nine? And anybody, anybody who doubts Jesus' deity, just picture that. Just yeah. picture somebody at your feet praising God, and your comment is not, get up, get up. But where's everybody else? Oh, that's so What's true. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> I will say, you know. And do, then, yep. I don't know, there's just a lot of other things. I'll just mention one more. In Matthew, sorry, in John 5 and 9, I love the contrasting stories of the two people that Jesus healed the the man by the by the pool of Siloam who'd been uh, crippled for 38 years and how poorly he responds compared to the brilliant, courageous response of the man born blind and hmm. John 9. I do think they're supposed to be read together, and I, I'd delight to do that and encourage other people to do the same thing. You know, one thing to, to return to The Chosen for just a moment, one of the things that has struck me about this show is a lot of times Jesus will heal someone and then he'll just give them a big hug. And I know we I know we don't know if he did that or not, but right. the fact that he would touch a leper and and just maybe it's because we're in this COVID era where all we do is fist bump people and uh, or we right. or we wave at, wave at him from across the room. The in that show, just the the physicality of Jesus being willing to give a hug, a smile at someone. Um, I do think there's right. some, something that's been beautiful about portraying that, and you do see that constantly in the Gospels. Jesus just being willing to touch. Yeah, there's touch. no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and the Jesus of the Gospels is just kind of a happy, smiling guy. And and clearly very physical. And, you know, the letter of First John says, you know, we touched, touched him, we him. handled yeah. him. Hmm. And, and the word, it's not the usual word for touch, like, you know, I touch your shoulder, but more like I grab you and give you a giant bear hug. The analogy I use is for, because um, I was studying this when I was doing some whitewater rafting, is imagine somebody falling out of your whitewater rafting boat, and the goal is not to touch him as hmm. or as they fall out, but to grab them by the arm or the leg or the neck and haul them back in. Hmm. And it's more like grab than touch. Hmm. That the word that John uses does not mean put my finger to his temple. It means uh, grab his body almost like a football player hmm. or like you're grabbing somebody when they're in danger of falling down. Hmm. It's a big, strong word. 
So what what do you say? You know, um, the title of our of our podcast today again was learning to love the gospels. So Dan, what do you say to Christians who just can't seem to get into a rhythm of reading the Bible? Who just can't seem to get into it? Maybe don't see the relevance for daily life. I know. I, I mean, I'm sure this is a lot of what you address in your podcast uh, on work um, and in. Um, but what do you say to those Christians who? just can't seem to get into the Bible, don't see the relevance necessarily, don't have the felt need of reading it. How do you counsel people in that way? Well, my first piece of counsel is to get off social media so you have time for things that really matter. Mm. Mm. Now, can I give an amen wow. on that? <laughs> a little mic drop there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank I mean, you for that. When somebody says I don't have time to read the Bible, I think, what are you talking about? I mean, you can read, you can, you can read a chapter of the Bible and you can read one of the gospels. You can read most gospel chapters in seven minutes. Mm. Really? You don't have to, you don't have seven minutes. Mm. Mm. That's that, good know, amazing to me. Mm. Um, so that's my first point. My second point, I'll be a more tender and say, get a study Bible and yes, it'll make it take longer, but they'll explain the things that matter the most that you can't discern. Don't understand. You know, why, don't, why did Jesus do that? And, uh, one of my friends said, it's kind of like having an instruction manual. I don't know how this works. And then you look down to those little notes, and they they don't tell you everything, but they tell you things that, that help. Mm. And I would say, you know, the other point might be that you could do it with a friend or if you're married with your spouse or with children, mm. talk it over together. Sometimes when we're reading for ourselves, it's perhaps less lively for some people, more lively to read it with somebody else and ask a few questions. And even if you don't understand everything that's going on in the passage, just, you know, look for what did we learn about Jesus in this? What did we learn about how one does or does not follow him? Hmm. Those, those simple questions can keep you from ever reading five or 10 verses or 15 verses and saying, there is nothing here for me. There's always something here for you. Hmm. Hmm. That's great. Let's uh, finish up by, Dan, we want to hear a little bit more about your podcast, Working with Dan Doriani. I've gone ahead and listened to a number of episodes. They've been excellent. You had John Hendricks, who we had on this podcast two or three years ago, who's an incredible illustrator. Uh, The one with Skip Ryan spoke to my heart quite a bit. Uh, Obviously, you know what Skip went through. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, Dan, and what you're, you're hoping to accomplish through this podcast, Working with Dan Doriani. Yeah, I can tie it into the Gospels. So, you know, one of the things that we know is that Jesus was both a blue-collar and white-collar worker. Mm-hmm. He was a carpenter, we say, but it really means somebody who worked with materials. Tecton. In those yep. days, if you if you worked with, right, exactly, if you worked yep. with wood, you worked with metal and stone almost certainly as well. So Jesus uh, was unafraid of manual labor and was probably a skilled artisan, we could say, or, or technician with materials. And of course, Jesus was also a teacher and a prophet and a priest and a king. And so he he engaged in all the in the fundamental forms of work. And to follow Jesus is largely a matter of following him in our workplace, mm-hmm. at least from the age of, let's say, you know, roughly 20 to 60 to pick numbers. And of course, we can we can expand that in either direction. But let's say 20 to 60, we spend the greatest part of our energies in our our focused waking energies working. And that's where we follow Jesus. And that's true whether you do it in a church or whether you do it as an engineer or an IT person or a farmer or truck driver. We're trying to follow 
Jesus in our work. And so what I try to do in the podcast has, we've recorded about 22, but we've only released, I think, 15. Mm. Well, we released one tomorrow. We get to 15 tomorrow. Is interview people in various walks of life who are intentionally and thoughtfully following the Lord. Mm. Some of the people are kind of folks who just wrote a book, but, you know, they're mostly people who just want to follow Jesus in the arts or as teachers or librarians or surgeons or politicians or broadcasters or athletes or whatever it is. I mean, I try to get people that are interesting. Their work is interesting and articulate. Uh, in their description of their work, of course, is the goal. We've got a safety engineer. We've got an IT guy who coming up soon whose goal is, I mean, I find out amazing things in these interviews. I bet. But, yeah. in, but in one guy, I said, so, you know, the IT guy is working with artificial intelligence. I said, so just tell us all, John, his name's David, actually, um, can you please assure us that the rise of machines won't happen and that, you know, <laughs> and, and that uh, robots will not, wipe out planet Earth by launching uh, <laughs> nuclear strikes. And on three separate occasions, he, I said, so that won't ever happen. He said, well, Dan, it, it won't happen for the next 15 or 20 years. Oh, anyway. gosh. Well, that's not great. And I kept telling him, <laughs> I kept giving opportunity to back uh. off that. And he said, no, I can't do that. So I said, and then eventually said, of course, you know, good people are in the field to keep it from happening. Oh, man. That's, one reason why I'm in AI is to prevent the problems and the excesses. Wow. 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 Elon, Elon Musk so, is talking about putting stuff in our brains. Pretty, pretty, yeah. Oh, wow. man. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, and I, I interviewed a man named Bruce Hoey who, um, inter- who created a, new, a way to save lives. People, there was a cancer that everybody died of. Every mm-hmm. last person, 100% death rate. And he's, you know, kind of close to 70 by now. And today the survival rate's really close to 95% because of his work. And yet, because he was turning everything upside down, he paid a dear, he paid dearly. He really paid for for the advances he made. I mean, he's, Mm -hmm. you know, celebrated now, but it was not always easy at all. So it, it just people in the various walks of life that are, in my opinion, interesting and inspiring. And uh, our tagline is we want to fire, fire the imagination of Christians. And I, and I hope that's what it does is yeah. help people think, okay, how could, how could I follow Jesus and make a difference in my field, my field of labor, hmm. even if it's not very glamorous, hmm. like making air conditioners or making shampoo, which our couple people are going to interview. Or have interviewed. Cool. And tell tell me about the uh, Institute of Faith and Work that you're over. Yeah, the Institute of Faith and Work uh, has a podcast, and it and it tries to do through the podcast what it tries to do in in every setting, and that is to help believers practice their faith in their workplace. So this this last little book on work, though I can't remember, uh, something (laughs) makes a difference. That's the title. Um, Is you know, like an eight-week study for churches. And so we're trying to help people, pastors like you, take a group of people who want to practice their faith uh, in their workplace. And we write materials and we have, um, you know, study guide questions and resources to help people together study, how can I make a difference in my workplace? Uh, The secret sauce, and I, I can say that because it's not my idea, but one of my fellow professors, uh, Dr. 
Natasha Chapman, whom you two know, um, helped us develop the idea that leaders should tackle a project. And not everybody has the authority to tackle a project that would try to change some aspect of their workplace. We call it changing your corner of the world. We don't want to change the world. That's too grandiose. But if you lead a team of five or six people, maybe you can change that little corner of the world. Mm. Mm. Or if you're a librarian, you can get better books in your library Mm. and so on. Mm. So whatever your field is, if you are a formal official leader or an informal leader, we want to encourage people to think that they might be able to tackle a project that would allow them to make their workplace better. If it's a Christian organization, that might be easier. If it's a secular organization, to identify the values in your organization that align with Christian values and and make use of that alignment in proposals you make. Wow. Mm. What is the slogan you guys use, changing your corner of the kingdom or your corner of the world? Yeah, or... change, well, the, the, we say we talk about changing your corner of the world. There it Not is. Not change yep. the world. That's too much. That's yep. Nobody, nobody changes the world. Right, and you tiny hear, number of people. You hear something like "change the world," and it's it's you end up doing nothing because you say, "Well, I can't do anything." But when we think about the small little actions that, as you said, change, can change your corner, that is that's where you can get inspired. Yeah, that's within reach. That's everybody right. can probably almost everybody has some chance at some point in their life to lead a positive strategic change, even if it's only for two or five or 10 or 20 people. That's right. Mm. Dan, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, Josh. Good to talk to you, Betsy. Good to talk to you. I always enjoy it when I see you, which doesn't happen all that often, but once in a while. And so I'm glad to chat with you today. Well, thank you so much um, for listening today. Uh, Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And we'll hope to see you next time. All right. See everybody. Bye.